there was no day or night that passed when I didn't listen to the sounds from the sky. My sense of hearing was beginning to make up for my lack of sight, and I grew to know the different cries of the birds, the occasional bleat of the gull, and how the breeze sounded when it crossed the sea. I was on the hill near the camp, and I heard the far-off drone of an aeroplane. The sound was very clear. I dropped to my knees. I listened again for the drone. Yes, it was still there, closer now. I ran down the hill. I felt around the palm fronds and then pushed the stick over them. I blew on it until I heard the cackle of flames. In a few minutes, the signal fire was roaring. I ran back to the South Beach, where I'd be able to hear the aircraft without hearing the crackling fire. The plane was coming closer. I yelled towards the sky, here, down here. I decided to run back to the East Beach and to stand near the new arrangements of rocks that spelled out help, thinking at any moment that the plane would dive and that I would hear the roar of its engines as it crossed the quay at low altitude. I stood a few feet from the sloshing surf. I waited and waited, and I stood very still and listened. The plane had gone. I slowly returned to the East Beach and sat down in sea grape shade. I put my head down on my arms and sobbed, feeling no shame for what I was doing, for there seemed to be no hope of ever leaving devil's mouth. Well, that was an excerpt from uh, chapter 18 of Theodore Taylor's uh, renowned 20-chapter novel, The K, a book which tells the staggering story of Philip, an American-year-old boy, uh, sorry, 11-year-old American boy, uh, whose ship is torpedoed in, in World War II by a German submarine, and then tells how Philip not only goes on to become blind as a result of this terrible shipwreck, but that Philip must now survive on a small Caribbean island called Devil's Mouth. And life for a blind 11-year-old boy on Devil's Mouth is as awful as it sounds. In the early chapters, Philip scrabbles around to find food and drink amid tropical storms. And then in the middle chapters, Philip even has to bury his fellow survivor, an old man who has kept him alive until now. Accordingly, at the end of chapter 18 of 20, that I've just read to you, Philip totally breaks down when he thinks that he has heard the sound of a rescue plane, that the plane that must have come to save others, but the plane that has sadly not saved him and has instead left him stranded on devil's mouth. No wonder Philip wrote, I put my head down on my arms and sobbed, feeling no shame for what I was doing, for there seemed to be no hope of ever leaving devil's mouth. Friends, I don't imagine that any of us have experienced anything like the young Philip, for after all, uh, the story is just a story. But I wonder if you've ever felt like Philip. I wonder if you've ever looked out at the circumstances of your life and, and all the lawlessness of these days and then wept many, many hopeless tears because you thought that this is basically the end. It's very easy to think like that, isn't it? 
at those times when it, when it feels as though things just can't get any worse. It's very easy to think like that, even as Christians, perhaps particularly as Christians. Indeed, maybe you even came to church this morning feeling just like that. For when everything feels so utterly hopeless, when enemy fire has, has plunged us into deep water, when the hurricane of secularism has, has buffeted us until tears endlessly flow, when we have had to bury fellow Christians who have helped us to navigate this, this evil world, it is easy to sometimes look up to the sky like Philip and to feel as though the Lord Jesus has just, has just flown on by to save somebody else but not us and to think that this is how our story ends. Well, in the letter of Second Thessalonians, that is exactly how the church in Thessalonica felt. For as we've seen in previous weeks, this first century church, which, which met uh, basically on the Mediterranean beach, was on the verge of sitting down on that beach and sobbing. For no sooner had the Apostle Paul told them of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his amazing sacrificial death for their evil, and of his resurrection for their new life to come, that no sooner had the Thessalonians believed that, and so boarded that, that, that lifeboat of the gospel, that these new Christians were then torpedoed by evil enemies of that wonderful news. For in Acts chapter 17, we're told of how the Thessalonians were, were immediately dragged before first century Greek authorities. And now, in this second letter to them, we discover that, that their Christian lives have only gotten more painful since Paul came. For their Christian life that had begun with affliction, Acts chapter 17, had evidently continued with affliction. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. And yet as we come to today's passage, what was even worse for these marooned believers who were constantly buffeted by a lawless society was that some people had come into their church and had blinded them to the truth. For some had effectively told them that the rescue plane of the Lord Jesus Christ had already come. For in verse 2, that is what we discover, isn't it? That these Christians had heard, either by a spirit or by a spoken word, or even by a letter claiming to be from Paul, these Christians had heard, verse 1, that Christ was already gathering up his people. And that verse 2, that the day of the Lord had already arrived. Accordingly, Paul writes to those who are not only suffering, chapter 1, but, but those who, who are now shaken in mind, chapter 2. For there were believers who concluded that if, that if Christ has already come to rescue, and I still find myself on devil's mouth amid all this hardship for my faith, then surely there is no hope for me. Accordingly, what will Paul do? What will Paul do for these Christians who sit down like Philip on, on Greek beaches and weep? What will Paul do for these Christians who are already anxious about all the suffering that they were facing and are now alarmed, verse 2, by what they have just heard, namely the fact that the, the rescue plane has passed on by? Well, in many senses, Paul does uh, the obvious thing, the same thing that I guess we would do with Philip if we knew his story from beginning to end. For here in chapter 2 of his letter, Paul reminds these believers of where they are in history, his story, God's story. And so metaphorically, he reminds the Thessalonians that, that right now, it is chapter 18, 
and it is not chapter 20. This is not the final chapter, but one of the last chapters, a chapter where, where things are about to get a lot worse before they get better, but nevertheless a chapter where things are not as bad as they could be, and a chapter that comes just before their happily ever after rescue from devil's mouth. Accordingly, point one this morning, a first reminder from the Apostle Paul of where they are in God's story, first reminder for all who are feeling hopeless in this lawless world this morning, Christ has not yet saved from devil's mouth. Christ has not yet saved from devil's mouth. In light of the fact that that some evil people had blinded the Thessalonians to the truth of God's word, Paul takes this this false teaching head on and he effectively says, no, Jesus has not flown overhead and forgotten to pick you up out of all your pain. Jesus has not parachuted silently onto your island and is secretly now, now, now gathering up certain believers. Jesus has not come back yet. And for most of us here this morning, I I guess that that's not too hard to believe. And yet history tells us that that, that time and time again, it is often suffering people who are fond of Jesus and who are most desperate to get off this evil island who are the most susceptible to this type of teaching. And we see that in recent history as well as ancient history. Charles Russell of the Jehovah's Witnesses claimed that Christ had come on October the 1st, 1914, that that Christ had landed and was secretly now at work, and sadly, many believed him and still do. Likewise, the the radio presenter, Harold Camping, claimed that Christ would come visibly on May 21st, 2011, and when he didn't come visibly, Camping said that that Christ had come, but come secretly. And likewise, in 2014, Nicholas Gage, Uh, appeared in movie theaters up and down our land, performing in Left Behind, a movie based on the books of Tim LaHaye, where where Jesus secretly raptures Christians, and they just kind of mystically vanish into thin air before the whole world just goes haywire. And when people suffer, or when people fear more suffering, that the notion that, that Jesus has secretly come back or will secretly take us away before we can suffer anything can be a tempting idea. But real Christians must not believe that. Because when we do suffer, and friends we shall, such doctrine will only cause us to worry about whether we really belong to Jesus or whether he's really coming at all. Accordingly, to help these troubled Christians... Uh, to remember that Christ had not yet come, we may expect Paul to remind them again of what that final chapter 20 looked like. For that is what Paul did in his last letter. Indeed, if you just flick back one page of your Bibles, you'll see that to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. For chapter 5, verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there there is peace and security, and then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Can you see? They and we are not in the final chapter yet. Jesus has not come back yet. Because if he had, it would be very obvious to everybody. 
Yes, Jesus will come back like a thief in the night, in the sense that we will not know the time of his coming. But once Jesus has come, he will not sneak around the house of our world, silently removing those who are his. No, for as Jesus said himself, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus will come with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet sound of God. When Jesus comes, it will be like the, the birthing of a child. And although I've never actually had a baby, I'm told that one knows when these things have come. <laughs> Friends, when Christ finally comes, you will not be sitting around uh, chatting and suddenly say, hang on a second, was that the trumpet sound of God? Did I mean to look out the window to see if Jesus has come back or not? No, Jesus has not yet returned because it's quite obviously not the last chapter. However, however, if we actually return to verse 3, in this second letter, we see that this time that Paul does not actually argue that Christ has not yet come because it is not the, the final uh, chapter 20. But rather, Paul seems to argue here that Christ has not yet come because it is not yet the penultimate chapter 19. In short, the Thessalonians are to remember that, that Paul taught them that something would happen in the future before Jesus came back. And so please look with me at this intriguing verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And so to what do these two terrible events refer? That this rebellion, quite, quite literally, this, this military coup against God's word. That this time in history when some people who seem to be living for God rebelled against God and took part in this coup and started to follow the devil instead. And, and, this, and, this, and this revelation, when this so-called man of lawlessness will appear. That this time in history when someone will, will clearly set themselves up against God's law, uh, most likely setting up their office in, in God's church, God's temple, verse 4, and, and when someone will command people to worship him alone as God. To what do these two terrible events refer to? Well, let me immediately put you out of your misery. I don't know. I don't know. When I first came to these verses and sat down, I very quickly understood that I didn't know. I dug into the text as much as I possibly could, and I came to see that this rebellion could, could occur at any time. For verse 7, that the power of lawlessness is, is already at work. And I came to see that this, this man of lawlessness could not be the devil, because verse 9, Satan is behind the lawless man's lies. That this man acts like, like the devil's mouthpiece rather than actually being the devil. And as I looked around at the rest of Scripture, it became increasingly clear that this rebellion was what Jesus was referring to when he spoke about the last days. For Jesus also spoke of a time when, Matthew 24, many will fall away, many believers will be led astray, when lawlessness will be increased so that the love of many will grow cold. Likewise, as I looked around for this idea of a coming man of lawlessness in the Bible, I realized that there were actually many hints and shadows of him. A coming man of lawlessness was clearly spoken about by the prophet Daniel 
Indeed, here Paul almost quotes Daniel chapter 11. And a coming man of lawlessness was also spoken about by the Apostle John, whom he calls the Antichrist. And so I saw that this idea was not new. Clearly, at some point in history, that there would be a rebellion from pseudo-Christians, fake Christians, and a revelation of a pseudo-Christ, an antichrist. But I still didn't know exactly to when and to whom this was speaking. And so I turned to one of the most celebrated New Testament scholars of the 20th century, Leon Morris, and I discovered that, quote, it is too difficult to say. And so finally, in a last attempt, I turned to perhaps that the greatest uh, theologian of all time, Augustine, who wrote of these verses, I admit that the meaning of this completely escapes me. (laughs) Friends, in the vast majority of passages, that the Bible is just so clear and so easy to understand. It's not a book of wild mysteries that needs to be unlocked with some kind of special code. The Bible speaks with a plainness and a clarity that a young child can understand. But sometimes, on some specifics, we have to humbly say, I don't know. Now we can throw out all kinds of contenders for when this rebellion possibly occurred, when this man of lawlessness was revealed. For there are plenty in history. There's plenty of periods in history, rather, when people who, who seem to be trusting in God, they violently rebelled against him. And there are plenty of periods in history when certain men have have turned against God's word and have claimed to be pseudo-messiahs and have powerfully turned others against God's word. And we could play the guess the Antichrist game. We could make well-educated guesses about certain uh, Roman emperors or or medieval Catholic popes. or We could make more outlandish guesses about European dictators or, or American presidents. But such guessing is neither helpful nor humble. For all that we know is that this rebellion and this revelation has clearly not come when the Apostle Paul was writing to these Thessalonians. And that these Thessalonians should have known that because they had more details about it than we do, verse 5. We were not there. Accordingly, for you and I here today, whether this rebellion and this revelation has come now, or far more likely, I think, is still to come, whether we find ourselves in chapter 18 of God's story with the Thessalonians, or whether we find ourselves on the first page of chapter 19 of God's story, what we need to remember, just like the Thessalonians, and it is clearly not chapter 20 yet. Jesus has not come. And because of that, Christians would do well to stop arrogantly postulating about who this man of lawlessness is and instead to start humbly preparing for Jesus' coming soon and to start humbly preparing for hardship now. For we can expect lawlessness to be rampant now and that it will probably get worse over time. For the mystery of lawlessness is is already at work, verse 7, and the man of lawlessness will come soon, verse 4, if he hasn't already. Accordingly, Paul's prevailing message to these Christians at the start is don't be alarmed. If you are suffering, you're not in the wrong place or time. You're exactly where you are in God's story. Sadly, you're still in the place of suffering, the time of suffering. Sadly, you're still on the island of evil, where people act out against God's word and and tell you lies about God's word and will try to stop you loving God's word. 
for Christ is not yet saved from devil's mouth. Christ is not yet saved from devil's mouth. And yet secondly, and far more encouragingly, than just remembering that that is how it is right now. Second reminder from the Apostle Paul of where we are in history and God's story. Second point, for all who are feeling hopeless in this lawless world this morning, Christ is suppressing the devil's mouth. Point two, Christ is suppressing devil's mouth. When I was around seven years old, my little sister would sometimes deceitfully tell on me. Now, if you have a little sister, you probably know what I mean by that. And if you are a little sister, then you definitely know what I mean by that. For in my experience as a young boy, if my, if my little sister really wanted to make life hard for me, she, she would run into the kitchen and she would sidle up to, to one of my parents, normally my father, for they are often the, the best targets. And my four-year-old sister would flash her big brown eyes and she would tell a big fat lie that would sometimes land me into trouble. But if I could see that she was going to persecute me, and older siblings, I'm certainly not recommending this, and indeed, you must not go home and do this. But when I could see that she was sneaking off into the kitchen to speak evil against me, I would sprint up behind her, and I would rugby tackle her, and I would literally put my hand over her mouth <laughs> so that all my parents could hear was some kind of garbled noise outside the kitchen door. For sometimes, for the sake of truth and my own peace, I would physically suppress her evil speeches. And wonderfully, and obviously far more justly, that is what we discover happens in verses 6 and 7. For twice we are told that this man of lawlessness, who will one day be visibly unleashed, verse 4, but is already at work now, verse 7, deceiving people with lies, verse 9, that this mouthpiece of the devil is currently being restrained. And so at this point in the story, we realize that, that things are not as bad as they could be. Because in verse 6, we learn that, that someone is, is holding back the lawless one's life. Someone is suppressing evil. Indeed, in verse 7, they are, they are rugby tackling him. They, they're stopping him from, from, from reaching the kitchen door until it is time for them to step away. And so perhaps even more intriguingly, who is this, this, this linebacker of the man of lawlessness? Well, let me immediately put you out of your misery. I don't know. Again, I don't know. I read 20 pages of one Cambridge PhD professor who gave me seven possibilities for who this restrainer was, and then concluded it might be a combination of option two and seven. So again, I don't know. I don't know, and I don't think you know either. For in God's sovereignty, we are not meant to know who this suppressor is, but we are to remember God's sovereignty in their work of suppression. That's very clear, isn't it? From all this time language that we see in our passage, this will happen until this, then this, in his time. It's very clear that, that God is sovereign and that God has his whole story mapped out and that this is the time for evil to be somewhat suppressed. Suffering and evil may, may, may seem to be everywhere we look. Lawlessness may seem to be rampant in our world, and lies about God seem to be deceiving millions of people. And yet not only will God come back soon, but God is at work now. And so why are Christians to be encouraged? 
What is the second reason in this passage why we should not totally break down on devil's mouth like Philip, despite the fact that bad things will happen to us, despite the fact that the church is, is constantly in danger, despite the fact that we may feel overwhelmed by evil lies? Well, we are to have hope because God is in total control over all the evil that we may face. And much evil is being suppressed by him right now. And when we think about it, we can can see that, can't we, in part? Because for all of the lawlessness in our world, there are still many politicians working on laws to, to readdress evil. And for all the unruliness in our country, There are still many police officers restraining and and locking up evil people. And for all the suffering in our city, there are still many caregivers in it, doctors and nurses saving people out of evil situations. And for all the evil lies told about God in seemingly every corner of our world, there are still pastors and Sunday school teachers and godly church members and mom and dad who are opening up the Bible to others and are lovingly teaching them what is true and so shutting the mouth of the devil because God is sovereign, because God is kind. Christ may not have come back yet, but that does not mean that that the evil abounds unchecked by him. Christ is actively suppressing many lies until the full force of the lawless one comes in his time. Christ is not yet saved from devil's mouth. Christ is suppressing devil's mouth. But thirdly, and most wonderfully of all, point three, Christ will soon silence devil's mouth. Christ will soon silence devil's mouth. In the first half of verse eight, we get the rather frightening news that one day this period of suppression will end and that for a brief period in the penultimate chapter of history that the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And so what happens at that juncture? Well, look with me to verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Isn't that glorious? The time will come, says Paul, when Satan will roll out his great heavyweight champion. What, when the devil will roll out this great antichrist figure, ready for a great and final battle at the end, and Jesus will send him to the canvas in seconds. Again, when I was around seven years old, uh, if I'd been good, uh, if my sister hadn't told a lie about me, uh, my dad would let me stay up late uh, to watch the boxing on Saturday evening. And one evening uh, in September 1990, I remember staying up for, for the boxing battle, Britain versus Brazil, Chris Eubank versus Reginaldo dos Santos. And I waited. And I waited, and I waited for that ultimate fight. And for once, I hadn't fallen asleep on the couch before it began. For I had patiently endured the very lengthy pre-match build-up and all the protracted long walks up and into the ring. And so finally, the bell went. And Eubank walked over to Dos Santos and punched him once, and the fight was done. The commentator said something like, and Eubank has done it in one punch, and Dos Santos does not know whether he's in Birmingham or back in Brazil. And my father went over and turned the TV off. (laughs) And that is brilliantly the brief picture in verse 8. Except can you see that actually Jesus does not even need to throw one punch. 
And Jesus does not leave the man of lawlessness dazed. No, Jesus simply opens his mouth and he is dead, blown out like a candle. So what must we note here? Well, firstly, we should note that one of the main reasons that we should not spend so much time speculating about who this man of lawlessness is, is that he will not last very long. His mouth may be powerfully deceiving many people, but soon his evil mouth will be shut forever. But secondly, and far more importantly from verse 8, we must not feel overwhelmed by devil's mouth now. Friend, if you're feeling disheartened by all the lies that people tell about God's word, as I often am, in books and on social media and all across the internet, or if you're feeling burdened by all the lawlessness that you see when you open the newspaper or when you turn on the news, or if you're sobbing on the beach right now because you are so weary of dealing with your own evil, or because you have been torpedoed by some enemy, or because you are tired of burying fellow Christians who helped you when you were on devil's mouth. Remember, the end of the story is coming soon. We're not in the final chapter yet. Christ has not come back to save you yet, but Christ will come back to save you soon. There is hope of leaving devil's mouth because one day soon Jesus will silence him forever. And so friends, we're to remember that and we're to encourage others in that that Jesus' victory over all evil is certainly coming and that Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Friend, if you're feeling hopeless in this lawless world, stick verse 8 on your fridge when you get home. Stick it up with a picture of Chris Eubank if necessary. But above all, remember that gloriously the Lord Jesus will destroy all lawlessness soon. That all evil will be rid of and goodness will reign, that all suffering will will go away and pleasure will abound and, and all lies will be silenced and only the truth will be sung. And yet there's more application here in verse eight, isn't there? Well, third application in light of verse eight, perhaps particularly apt this morning if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Be careful if you are someone who says, if God is all-powerful, then why doesn't he just do away with evil? For my unbelieving friend, can you see here that that, that God is all-powerful and that he will do away with evil? The problem is, is that if he deals with all evil today, he will also have to deal with your evil. Indeed, one of the reasons that we're all still stuck on devil's mouth is because God is patiently waiting for you as he was waiting for me to end all your evil, waiting for you to come to Christ, that the one who deals with all evil at the cross or will deal with your evil at the end. My unbelieving friend, don't wait for his knockout blow of evil at the end. Accept his knockout blow of evil at the cross. Turn away from your evil. Turn to Christ today. But fourth and final application from verse 8, which I really want us to see as we head into verse 9. How does Christ kill the man of lawlessness? At verse 8, he kills him with the breath of his mouth. 
And the reason why Jesus kills the lawless one with his breath is not just for some kind of comedic value or even to showcase his power generally. No, the reason why Jesus kills with his mouth is because his word will win this great battle. In the first seven verses, that the man of lawlessness seemingly has the ultimate kind of death breath. For he is the one who, who denies the truth of God's law, and he is the one who is out sowing lies amongst God's people. And what comes out of his mouth is clearly very powerful. But what comes out of Jesus's is even greater. And so the key question that, that comes to all of us in this battleground world of truth and words and law is whose mouth will you love and live in? Whose mouth will you love and live in? For in verses 9 to 17 tells us that there's a very clear choice. For these final verses describe two types of people in this broken and evil world. And the first in verses 9 to 12 are the condemned. And so fourth point this morning, or sub point one of point three, or whatever you want to write down. The, the condemned will be seduced by devil's mouth. The condemned will be seduced by devil's mouth. Just like Philip in the book that we started this morning, as we all dwell on the island of suffering, there's a sense in which we are all blind. None of us can see everything in this world, and we certainly don't see all that is beyond it. Because my previous pastor always used to remind me, we do not live in the age of the eye, we live in the age of the ear. We all scrabble around unsighted, looking for food, water, shelter, but, but also comfort and meaning and hope. As Philip said in the book, my sense of hearing had to make up for my lack of sight. And in this broken world, ever since the fall of humanity, the Bible tells us that there are two voices that we hear. The voice of God's law, all that comes from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, the mouth of Christ, and the voice of lawlessness, all that comes from the devil's mouth. And sadly, Paul warns us here that some will not be rescued off the island. Instead, some will be condemned, verse 12. Because look with me to verse 10 they will begin to be deceived by devil's mouth. They will begin to be seduced by all the, the small and brief pleasures of this island, such that they will begin to think that this is all there is. For verse 9, there will be many wicked ways in which the man of lawlessness will seduce the perishing. And so verse 11, some will refuse to believe God's truth. Some will live for devil's mouth and will start to laugh at any notion of rescue. And so end of verse 11, they will refuse to be saved. And as a result of that, rather shockingly, as they stubbornly refuse to love the truth, verse 10, and as they start to love wickedness instead, verse 12, God will begin to muffle the sounds of hope as they start to believe the lie verse 11. God will give them over to devil's mouth. He will say, if you love this place, then you can live here. But this place will be condemned and you with it if you refuse to believe my word, my son, my rescuer, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, in this past week or so, I've sadly seen much death. Indeed, many of you are here for the funeral of Miss Sue Jeanette the other Thursday. Many of you were at Woodlawn Cemetery for the funeral of Louise Reed's mother on Monday. And both of those wonderful ladies who were into their 80s, who were not seduced by devil's mouth, are both no longer on devil's mouth. For they both listened to God's word for over 80 years. And now sound has turned to sight. And they suffer no more. But for the rest of us, who are still on this island, who are you listening to now? For the last 80 years, there's been a weekly radio program on the BBC uh, back in England called Desert Island Discs. And the imaginary premise of the show is that an interviewed celebrity is about to be cast away on a desert island and can only take with them uh, eight sound recordings. And so for the most part, it's an opportunity to hear the music that famous people most love. But at the end of the radio show, uh, probably because it began 80 years ago, the tradition is that the guest is also given a copy of the Bible to read on the desert island. But in the last decade or so, there has been an increasing clamor to remove that outdated item. Indeed, many celebrities have outright refused a Bible because today, most want to make it very, very clear that even on an imaginary island, they would have absolutely no use for the words of the hope of rescue. Can I have the Bible of vegetarian cooking instead? Said one famous politician. I don't want it. I don't like the Bible. Can I have a gun instead to put me out of my misery? Said one comedian. Friends, in this desert island life, where not all is sun and, and sea and sand, is that actually you? Do you reject the hope of many 80-year-olds? Do you refuse that those words as some kind of outdated tradition? Do you conclude that, that a modern book from a human author would be far better? Or that when the storms of life come, that a pistol would bring greater solace than this passage? Why? Whose mouth are you loving and living in? Friends, the warning here is quite plain, isn't it? Indeed, it would be very unkind of me to just gloss over it. Some will refuse rescue, will love evil, and will listen to the lie. Because some will be seduced by devil's mouth, and God will condemn them at death. But for others, praise God, it will not be so. For in verses 13 to 17, Paul thanks God that it will be not so for the Thessalonians. For final point this morning, last 30 seconds, the chosen will stand firm in Christ's mouth. The chosen will stand firm in Christ's mouth. Now, in light of the fact that the Thessalonians were, were briefly deceived by false teaching about Jesus having already come, we might imagine that by the time they reached this point in Paul's letter, that some of them were now very worried that they were part of this condemned group. And, and so Paul looks to encourage them. 
by reminding them that they have been chosen. That verse 13, they were chosen to be loved by God. That verse 13, again, they were chosen for, for salvation by God. At chapter, verse 14, they were, they were chosen to, to share in the glory of God. But not only would they be taken off this evil island, but that they would travel to Christ's glorious home. And so what do these believers have to do? What do they have to do? Well, in a sense, if they were chosen, you might expect that the Paul would just say to them now, sit tight, Jesus is coming, you've believed, don't do anything, just wait for the end. But Paul doesn't say that. Because despite the fact that these Thessalonians, just like us, were to have every confidence that God had chosen them for rescue because they believed, that the deceptive words of the lawless man were still being pumped out across the island. And so Paul commands them, verse 15, to stand firm, to hold fast to the teachings that we passed on to you. Amid all the storms of evil and suffering, the chosen will keep hanging on to the gospel. Christians will listen to God's word, that truth, that heavenly hope. Indeed, they will be just like Philip on devil's mouth. There was no day or night that passed when I didn't listen to the sounds from the sky. Friends, Christians do not spend all their days just reading, listening to the latest trashy novel or self-help book. Christians do not spend all their nights just listening to the sounds of social media or sports radio. Friends, those who will be rescued will be readers. For they will await certain rescue. And as they do so, they will see the deceptive danger of listening and loving and living in the devil's mouth. And so as they await rescue, they will listen and they will love and they will live in Christ's mouth. There was no day or night that passed when I didn't listen out to the sounds from the sky. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, many of us are weary and battered and hopeless. Many of us weep at the lawlessness that we see and all the evil lies that we hear on a daily basis. And so, Father, firstly, we rejoice in your sovereign word. We rejoice in its unsugarcoated realism and the fact that Christ has not yet come. And we rejoice in the fact that it reminds us that you are sovereignly suppressing evil, that the lawless one is on a leash. And most of all, we rejoice that it reminds us that one day, if we trust in Christ, that he will, he will rescue us from this evil world. Father, how we praise you that one day evil will be vanquished forever when the father of lies will be felled by the one word of Christ. Father, we look forward to that day and we praise you for it. And so, Father, until then, may we be those who rely on the mighty defense of your truth 
amid all the storms of life. May we not be deceived by the ancient foe, but may we listen and love and live in your book. We pray this for your glory and our good.